1: I'm Kathy Worthington welcome to late boomers our special guest today is Nora Edelstein who began her career as an architect, but went on to become a professional life and career development coach speaker and organizational leader.
2: Hi, I'm Mary Elkins. Nora's work with clients and businesses throughout the world has helped both individuals on their personal journeys, as well as help entrepreneurs enhance their communication skills in order to
3: motivate and build high-performance leadership teams. Welcome, Nora. Thank you. Thank you, Mary and Kathy. Thanks for having me. We're glad to have you.
1: Tell us about your background and training and how it led you on the path to becoming a professional coach.
3: I would be happy to. Um, How much time do you have? (laughs) Three or four hours. (laughs) Um, So I started... I, I kind of stumbled into architecture. I, after high school, I grew up in San Francisco and after high school, I went and lived abroad and kind of skipped the whole freshman year at college. Uh, everyone was doing that in 77 uh, when I graduated. And um, so I came back and I had gotten into Berkeley and I just had no idea. I was, I think it was mid-year and I just didn't understand the system. So I just thought, Architecture, it's artistic and seems like you could make money. So I just kind of stumbled into it. And um, I was uh, a little bit of the black sheep of my class because I was among people who had been drawing on napkins since they were two and had always wanted to be architects. And that seemed to be the character of that profession of people who really knew where they were headed. And uh, that was not me. And so it was. It really was a struggle from the beginning. There were certain parts of it that I absolutely loved the artistic part of it, doing pretty drawings, learning lots of new things, being at Berkeley. I even liked it enough to go on to graduate school at Rice. Um, but the whole time, I was just kind of like a fish out of water a little bit. I mean, I certainly had talent in some ways. Uh, and when I entered the workforce, it, uh, you know, that the mismatch between me and my personality and talents in the field became more apparent and it took me 20 years in architecture to realize that I am not a perfectionist nor do I care to be Mm. and yeah um, I think it was pardon me
1: a requirement right
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you want those buildings to stand up, (laughs) I I did get into exhibit design, which I liked more because it was um, I was working with storytellers and visual artists and and filmmakers. And so that was much more interesting to me. And so the end of my career was fun, but still not. um, I had so much stress about not being able to fulfill, you know, not tracking projects well, or, you know, having things not fit when they get to the site. So, um, and you just have to be able to do that stuff. So I think it was probably because I was so unhappy and felt so stuck, uh, that I was always seeking, you know, I was always going to self-development seminars, therapy, anything I could get my hands on every book in the books bookstore on, um, you know, self-help books. And and it was through one of these self-development seminars that somebody asked the question, what dream did you forget about? And Uh in that moment, I realized I, when I was 17 years old, before I went on my professional journey, I wanted to do mediation or conflict resolution. I had Uh read an article that I just coveted and carried with me about Uh, these people that had gone to this town where there was having there was a lot of race conflict and they had held these workshops and by the end everyone was in love with each other and it was I was so clear that that's what I wanted to do and then I completely forgot about it so Mm. when someone asked that question I woke up and I remembered that and I started on a quest to discover how I could do that you know here I had a master's degree in a field and 20 years experience. And I had no idea how I was going to transition into a completely new field. Uh-huh. And I, every, all the roads seemed to lead towards mediation. And it was like courtroom divorces and things that I had no yeah. interest in. Ah. Yeah. And I finally met. So coaching was very new. This was 16, almost 17 years ago. Uh-huh. And so, even though I had been exposed to coaching through my seminars and I had actually coached, I had no idea this was a profession. Um, but finally, just through a series of connections, I met someone who had just graduated from this program. And when the leader of that program called me up and said, if you could remove any barriers between yourself and another human being in communication, would that light you up? And I was like, that's conflict resolution. That's what I've been looking for this whole time. Perfect. Interesting.
2: Yeah. Perfect. Wow. Well, uh, w- are there any similarities
3: between being an architect and a life coach? Well, there are many similarities, but they didn't occur to me till about 10 years into being a coach, even though my business card that I got from the company that trained me said life by design. Um, but yeah. so there's some obvious metaphorical parallels you know when you work with people you create a vision of the future when you're an architect you have a vision of you know your building that you're designing and then you need to build a foundation and you need to put structures in place so that you can fulfill on your vision so there's all there's a lot of parallels and part of it came my realization came because i kept meeting designers who had become coaches and i just thought that was so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's more if you want me to continue. Yeah. Continue. Yes. I think it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. And then, um, so someone, you know, I was probably like five years into being a coach, maybe six years. And someone sent me a a chapter from a book, uh, by Peter Block. And it was called the answer to how is yes. And his thesis was that our, he was, he was a business coach. And so he was looking for how to you know how to solve our society's problems basically through business and he was noticing that our society is mostly run by economists and engineers um so it was kind of like as archetype archetypes and there was a third archetype which was the artist but the but the um, we were really dominated by the engineer and the economist, and they're just problem solving problem. How are we going to do this? How are we going to get this done? How are we going to get this done? The artist was asking different questions, but that's not really their role is to, you know, solve societal problems through business. So he created this, uh, a new archetype called social architecture. Oh. And the minute I read that, I just, I literally was shaking. It was funny because this person had sent me this chapter and said, this is who you are. This is what you do. And I didn't read it for like six months. And I remember I was sitting on the beach. I was in California and I just thought I'm going to read this chapter. And suddenly it was just like everything just kind of collapsed into itself. Like my whole career in architecture and what had interests me and my training as a coach and you know, both just questions people had asked me along the way. It's like, I suddenly, was like, my head was like popcorn remembering and making all these connections.
1: That's fantastic.
3: Yeah, fascinating.
1: Everyone should have that in their life at some point, right? But I think most people aren't that fortunate. But can you tell our listeners what a life coach does and how your work with individuals is a little different from working with corporate teams? absolutely.
3: Uh, so when I work with individuals, I mean, people come to me in very different places in life. But for the most part, I would say people that come to coaching have a goal that they've been trying to accomplish. Whether that's a personal goal, like having a relationship, or um, or a very, you know a career goal, like I want to get out of my career or I want to start a business. So they just, they have goals that they haven't been able to reach on their own. And maybe they, and they don't really know how they're going to bridge that gap. Mm -hmm. And so they come to coaching mostly for that. And what I, and and people are in different fields. You know, some people say you should have a niche. I really, you know, what I coach people on is the conversation that's standing in the way of whatever it is they want, they want. So for marketing purposes, it might be a great idea for me to only coach these types of people, but it's really about just having bridging that gap Uh and dismantling the beliefs that all of us have that are in the way of what we want. So I'm not really, I don't, I'm not really concerned with what it is you want, but I can support you in achieving it. Well, Is it the same thing as going to a psychologist? No, it's not. Um, (laughs) What's the difference? I didn't mean that tone, yeah, no, that's a big (laughs) question. Um, And it usually is everyone's first question. Uh, So I would say very, it's a complex answer. So very simply put, therapy has traditionally focused on the past and healing the past and so you're digging into childhood what happened how did you feel you know just like re- really exploring the past coaching is really about the future hmm. so um and there i find that along the way you can't really move towards the future without at least looking at the past so when coaches look at the past, the tools are very different. We're not looking at the past to go in and explore what happened and how it made you feel. And by the way, there, I've been in a lot of therapy and I'm in no way, you know, this is, therapy is incredibly valuable. It just has like a different purpose. Um, mm-hmm. But when we have a lot of, co- the coaching tools go in and I think of them as more surgical. It was like, you know, you might identify an event that happened um, and then you might ask, what did you make up about that event? Like from the point of view of a five or seven year old, we all just make up these decisions that become our reality. You know, I call it your survival mechanism. So it's like, you know, in order to avoid that thing that happened that you never want to happen again, I'm going to be X, you know, I'm going to be the life of the party or I'm going to be a wallflower or I'm going to be. You know, the smartest person in the room, or I'm going to be successful. So we make decisions based on those events. So we don't spend a lot of time in the past. But I can't even imagine a process where you're only you just future, future, future. It's like you have to under uncover some of these past-based beliefs.
1: Yeah, because you're bringing yourself along into the future, and you've got to be yeah. realize what you're dealing with. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, what would you say? A lot of people have difficulty with time management and organization, and so what would be your advice to them?
3: Uh, let me think about that. I certainly have. <laughs> I have dealt with that even in myself. Um, <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> there's two aspects of the kind of coaching that I was trained in. One of them is the facilitative facilitative kind of tools-based coaching, you know, and there's a, certainly a lot of tools out there to help you manage your time better. It's my experience, both of myself and other people that there's usually something in my blind spot that's in the way of me using, applying those tools, you know, just because I know a good tool doesn't mean I'm going to be using them. So there's usually like some level of resistance or, you know, I've like, for instance, I used to hate tracking things. I mean, it's maybe (laughs) why I wasn't a good architect. You know, I just can't stand tracking things. I don't want to, I'm one of these people. It's like, I don't want to know the facts. I just want to like kind of be in the moment and dance along. Well, that's not a very good time management tool. Uh So I've had to really work at not only implementing Certain thing, finding the thing that works for me, like not all tools are going to work for me, but also uncovering, like, what is the belief? What is the thing that I'm trying to keep at bay by not being more on top of my time management? Mm-hmm. Good advice for certainly Kathy and me. <laughs> <laughs> what and is? Yes. like, you don't want to be dominated by, you know, for me, it's a lot of... Um, I have this fear, like I'm the, the concept of coaching that I love the most is responsibility. And how uh I learned to define responsibility as ownership without judgment or blame. That is not the normal relationship people have to responsibility. For me, responsibility was scary. It included, you know, things going really wrong. Um, uh-huh. you know, it's like I don't want to be to blame, right? We think of it as a blame um concept. And so I avoided responsibility and what a great way to avoid responsibility is like not being reliable, right? No, one's going to come to you to be on time to do things if you're, you know, avoiding responsibility. So that would be an example from my life. And I'm happy to say I've, um, you know, I can't operate that way if I'm going to have a business. So I've had to transform that and I'm doing pretty well. That's great. Yeah, that is. Thank you. Um, obviously people come
2: to you for that, um, but can you, and you did speak about using some tools. Can you give our listeners a few ideas and pointers as to what those tools might be?
3: Um, well, in what specific area? Oh, you mean in time management? Oh, just in coaching in general and in mm-hmm. say, say in maybe a few regarding individuals,
2: but also, with entrepreneurs who want to grow their
3: businesses? Well, the most foundational tool I use with whether I'm working with an organization or an individual is what I call project design. And the way we go, you know, project designs is a very dry way of talking about something that's actually quite magical and very architectural. Yeah, it does sound <laughs> architectural and in a way it's architecting your future. So, so in the way we design project design is we start with an inspiring vision. So you place yourself in the future. I always use Everest. So let's say you want to go to Everest. Um, and so there's so many details in between where you are and being at the top of Everest right Uh so the first thing you do is you figure out why you want to go to Everest you know there's people that talk about your why and so it's very important it's I call it an objective it's like it's very important to know what the purpose of going to the top of Everest is right Hmm. so for some people it might be you know um reaching my physical potential for someone else it would be um you know, being aware of how vast the world is for someone else it, you know, it's like anybody making a lot of money or, you know, by getting sponsors. So you have to be very clear on why your goal is important to you. And that's very personal. Ah, And then the second step would be to create a vision, like putting yourself on the top of Everest, planting, whatever it is, you're going to plant in the ground, showing that you've been there and just projecting yourself into the future and actually writing out what it's like at the top of Everest. And this is written in the present tense as if it's already a done deal. Like I just took my last step. It's freezing. (laughs) I have one energy bar left. You know, it's like, I'm so proud. Um, You can talk about things you overcame along the way to get there. Uh Um, you know, you can include your purpose of being there. You know, you just write this very kind of juicy vision of what it's like being up there. And I love that. Yeah, and so you can use this in business. It's like, here's, here's how many clients I'm working with and who they are. Here's how it is, you know, here's how my team is working together and people are inspired and lit up. It's like, you can do it with a relationship. It's like, yeah, I'm and here's how much my, my bank life. account
1: is going up every month.
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: Visual, like visualization of that. Exactly.
3: Exactly. And it has to, there's two factors It has to be inspiring to you. And it has to be outside your comfort zone. Like you have no idea how you're going to get there Hmm. because if it were in your comfort zone, if it were a project or a vision called, I'm going to clean my closets out, you know, it wouldn't, it would just be, you know, something you could do on your own. That's outside my comfort zone. <laughs> or maybe
1: you couldn't do it on your own, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> that would be your
3: desk. <laughs> but that was, that's a great example because knowing why your why it's important to you have your closets clean might shift your relationship to it. If there's really no purpose to it and you don't really care, it's like why bother, you know? Mm-hmm. That so must be and the then <laughs> <laughs> love it. And then from that vision, you start to. You you pull out what are the what we call SMART goals the specific, specific measurable achievable results in time so it's like I will be uh, making X number of dollars I will be um, working in a job that meets my conditions of satisfaction I will be with um, you know the the partner of my dreams you know you just you want to you find the ways to make it measurable okay. Yeah. Yeah. Partner dreams. you want to measure, you'd want to measure that. And then you working backwards, all of this is very challenging, by the way, like for some people being willing to say what it is you really want is like, people get very emotional about that because, you know, in our society, or maybe, you know, this is part of the human condition. We've stopped dreaming, you know, and this is kind of asking you to be like the kid in kindergarten, you know, that's saying, I'm going to be a fireman or a ballerina or, you know, I'm the world Mm -hmm. is my oyster kind of. A lot of people don't even know what they want. Yeah. Yeah. I would say most people know what they want, but they're so they don't have any permission for themselves to desire it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think the not knowing is almost like a cover up for not wanting to get your heart broken by wanting. Oh, that's a good point.
1: That's quite true. And you said that you're passionate about developing leaders. So can you really develop leaders? Are people
3: born a certain way? Um, I have, I absolutely do think you can develop leaders. Um, you know, and in, in, again, it's the same idea. Well, first of all, the person has to want to be a leader. Again, the person has to be inspired by leadership. You know, it's just a role they got placed in. and there's they don't really want to be there, um, that would be a barrier in the way of it. But if someone really wants to be a leader and is open and willing to discover what their blind spots are and wh- how they're protecting themselves. Um, one of the foundational tools that I learned in my coach's training is we we talk about how people like we all come into the world as what we call your essence. other people call it other things like your true self your higher self, however you want to articulate it in, um, the methodology I was trained in, we just call it your essence. Someone said to me once, who were you before you entered your body and whether, whatever your beliefs are, I just love that idea. To me, that's essence. (laughs) It was like, I have these innate qualities that are like my birthright and that's who I truly am. And then for all of us, things start to happen around the age of five or seven, where, you know, something happens, it could be something really traumatic, like, like a parent dies or leaves, or it could be something really simple, like somebody steals your ball (laughs) at the park. And you, we kind of wake up from this, like oneness between ourselves and the universe. And we realize being my essence, isn't going to cut it. The world is a dangerous place. And I better develop some strategies to survive. Mm -hmm. And So people's strategies can be vastly different. It doesn't really matter. What's common among people's strategies is that it's all, it's protective. It's fear-based. It's not who you really are. And there's many, and it's constrictive. And it shows up in all of your limiting beliefs, kind of like, and we call that your survival mechanism. Mm. So once you once people realize whether I'm talking to a leader or someone who wants a relationship or someone who wants to go to Everest realize that, okay, there's a true me. And then there's an artificial me that's been built up. That's become my identity. And once you kind of separate from that, and it's like, Oh, I actually get to choose. I can be my essence or I can be my survival mechanism. And it's really up to me. It's my choice. Oh, that's powerful.
2: Um, You co-founded a nonprofit that provides coaching to veterans what drove you to do that and what did you hope to achieve?
3: Yeah. Just to be completely transparent, we ran, we had the nonprofit for, I think we had it for th- three years and then we no longer have it. And I can, I can include that as to what happened. It was very informative for me coaching nonprofits and organizations about how it goes to be a founder. Um. So the, the, the idea came from, um, well, first of all, people were, um, our military were coming back from Iraq, post-traumatic stress, just like, and my partner, Elizabeth, um, called me one day. She wasn't my partner yet. She was someone that I, was, that I coached with. And she said, I just heard this show about how just devastating it is to come home and how hard it is to find jobs and how hard it is to adapt. And that story just hit me so hard because I grew up in San Francisco in, um, I was born in 59. So I was kind of at the tail end of the Vietnam War, but I had, my brothers were five and eight years older than me. And Uh We were just like automatically anti-war. I had my little peace outfit. We would go to Golden Gate Park and we were like going to peace protests. And I had my little peace sign on a leather chain and my leather sandals with my red socks and my little brass buckle. I mean, I had the whole outfit and, um, and loved it. It's so much a part of who I am just growing up, like in a way, in a cloud of pot with these like, loving people surrounding me. I'm so grateful that I had that experience. And so it was just so obvious to me that you have to be for peace and against war. And, and I think I inherited. you know, I was eight years old, I inherited a lot of attitudes about people who were in the military, you know, to be completely frank and brutal. It was like, I thought there were idiots for going to war. It's like, why, I couldn't even understand. It was like, not my world. And when I was about, I don't know, probably like 10 years, I don't know how many years later, but it was way after the Vietnam war, I was watching this movie and it was about these, you know, very naive, four four boys really, who were shipping off from San Francisco. They were all from the Midwest. It was called Dogfight, is the movie hmm. anyway. So it's, I won't go into all the details of the movie, but in the, the, at the end of the movie, it shows the only surviving one coming back to San Francisco. I'm going to cry now. It's like this movie just oh. kills me coming back to San Francisco and having people throw food at them and just being so messed up. And so, you know, losing all their friends and just how people treated them um, him And I was, it was like a punch in the stomach to me because even though you could say I was eight years old and I didn't know what I was thinking, I was so devastated because I was perfectly capable of having that attitude. And so, um, you know, just that disdain and you're stupid for doing it and nothing else, you know. And so um when Elizabeth, my friend fast forward to when I was a coach called me and said, we have to do something about this. I was like, yes, this is my cause.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, and so I started, we had um, a Marine was one of our partners and another coach. And we ran a bunch a few pilot programs. I got together 20 coaches. We coached for free, having a pilot program. I met so many amazing people in the military. It was an unbelievable experience. And the day, and we just never raised any money because we didn't know, you know, we kind of didn't know what we were doing. And I talked to this woman of a very successful um, nonprofit and five minutes in, she said, you don't want to run a nonprofit. She said, you want to coach people. And I was like, you are so right, I'm not, I don't wanna run a nonprofit. I just wanna coach people, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, very, very difficult.
3: But I'm sure you made a difference. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it It made, it had as big an impact on me as we made on anyone. It was amazing, the people we coached. That's
1: great. But in your bio, you quote Rumi, quote, your task is not to seek for love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. End quote. What does that mean to you and your work?
3: I feel like that is the work, you know, it's like I was talking about, like I, what I say to, when, when we do this, we have these conversations where we distinguish who you truly are as distinct from this identity, the survival mechanism that you built up and the metaphor. I actually, I just came up with a new architectural metaphor for this. It's almost like your survival mechanism is like your scaffold and over your essence. So it's like you are this beautiful building and you've been under construction with the scaffolding covering, it, covering you up for year after year after year. And the scaffolding is useful. Um, it helps People like, you know, tinker with whatever your stonework or whatever, but it's not you. It's not your building. So when I think of removing barriers, I I tell people it's like you don't have to do anything to be your essence. You already are your essence. You just have to have the courage to dismantle this false identity, this scaffolding that you've um, that you built around yourself. So yeah, mm-hmm. and that's what I think of. It's like removing barriers to love because I think naturally. We are love and, but there's a lot of, you know, I experience barriers every day to that.
2: Yeah. We're scared. Yeah. We all do for ourselves and others. That's great, great information. Thank you so much. Our guest on Late Boomers has been Nora Edelstein, professional life and leadership coach, organizational leader, public speaker, social architect, who helps people to achieve clarity of purpose, personal satisfaction, confidence, and freedom to be themselves. Nora, would you like
3: our listeners to have a takeaway today? What might you tell them? Sure. Um, yeah. So first of all, you can, um, I think, I don't know if you're going to share. my website is Nora And on my website, you can um, sign up for a discovery session. So if, coaching is interesting to you or it sparked something in you and you feel like you might want to pursue it with no, um, you know, commitment, but just want to really sit down and actually be coached and have that experience, I am happy to offer that to your listeners. That sounds great. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Thank you. And as she said, you can connect with Nora on her website. I just want to point out, she spells Nora, N-O-R-A-H edelstein.com and she's also on linkedin if you want to approach her that way and we want to remind our listeners to visit our website and drop us an email at lateboomers.biz, b-i-z also please follow late boomers on instagram and follow your co-hosts at i am kathy worthington and at i am mary elkins we hope we have inspired challenged and entertained you on our podcast thank you so
3: much Nora. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to EWNPodcastNetwork.com.
2: This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact.
0: and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this, you can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula. Covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.